Nintendo Audio. If you enjoy the stories on this podcast, you'll also like the stories in my book, Filmmaking Confidential, which isn't just for filmmakers, but also all artists and really any entrepreneur. Now on Amazon.com and Audible.com bestseller. I just want to say thank you to all of you who ordered it. If you haven't yet picked it up, it's available wherever books are sold in most countries around the world. To find out more, check out FilmmakingConfidential.com and SteveBalderson.com. And thank you. I'm Steve Balderson, and you're listening to the Filmmaking Confidential Podcast. Every week we meet with filmmakers, writers, actors, artists, and other notables. Many episodes include questions or commentary from other filmmakers listening to the conversation. Today's guest is the fabulous Rena Riffle. Rena is an American actress, singer, dancer, model, writer, producer, and director. She is best known for her supporting roles in films such as Showgirls, Striptease, and Mulholland Drive. 50 bucks a pop, you take them in the back. Touch and go. They touch, they go. You can touch them, they cannot touch you. That's good. Now if they come, it's okay. If they take it out, come all over you, call a bouncer. Unless he gives you a big tip. If he gives you a big tip, it's okay. You got that? Was he serious? That was Rena in a clip from Showgirls. I used to entertain myself with my friends that were really creative. And we would have, and I think a lot of kids actually did this, but we would have these characters with their whole storyline. And we had like five different ones. And then we would just play for hours, like improving these scenarios. And then another thing we did was we played Barbies and we had like Barbie families and we built their houses and would decorate and just have like these continuous like soap opera storylines. And that was all like before 10 years old. Like, I think that started maybe around six or seven years old. Cool. And so I, yeah, like, I look back and I think that's a big part of what I do now. It's just the same. Yeah. I had that too. I had um, star Wars action figures, but I gave them different names and they had like, you know, who was married to who, you know, and like who killed someone and then who did it, you know, and like all this sort of like, and, and acting out them. Yes. You, You know? And then as I got older, I just in, it, it applied that to human beings <laughs> for a film. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it, it it's transferable. <laughs> like playing as kids, it transfers into writing a script, being a filmmaker, being an actor, even. What did, you know, what did you do first? Like when you, when you finally, did you say, I'm going to be an actor now? Yeah. That's a confusing question. I asked myself that a lot, actually. The journey was when I was like four or five years old, I realized I was going to be an actress. And it was like this profound moment that I remember. And all of us kids were telling each other what we're going to be when we grow up. 
And my one friend said he was going to be an astronaut. And then he cut, he actually did become that. And then my other friend was, oh, I'm going to be a teacher. And, and then I was like, oh, I know what I'm going to be. I'm going to be an actress, but I wanted to be like on Gilligan's Island. I wanted to be ginger because like I, and I love Marianne as well, but I just like the glamorous ginger. But then as things progressed, I ultimately became really interested in dance and choreography. So I kind of spent my teenage years and even before that focusing on dance. And that's what brought me to move to LA was um, become a dancer. Like know me. (laughs) That's hilarious. I'm a dancer. A friend that lived in the building, the apartment building, introduced me, set up a, a general meeting with Nancy Mayer, the casting director, who's still doing really well. She referred me to an acting coach and told me also like what dance studios I should be going to. So for some reason, I just took her advice and I started taking acting classes. I, I just started studying and then we had an agent come in for a showcase and the agent wanted to sign me. I, w- I was still like 19 at the time. And then they sent me out on my first audition, which was like kind of, it was a B movie, but it was kind of a, a bigger budget. It was through Lorimar. If you, if you remember that <laughs> company back then down yeah. at, um, Sony studios now was like Lorimar back then. And then, so anyway, I got the part, like my first audition but then I kind of quit acting for a little while and I told my agent I didn't want to act. <laughs> so then I kind of did some soul searching at, you know, 19, 20 years old. And I was like, no, I want to, I want to be a model. And I just really loved makeup and fashion and still photography. I, I really, I still love still photography. To me, it's like acting, but you're working just in a different media. Totally. Like even the, like the Cindy Sherman photos, you know, that are like film stills to films that don't exist. Yes. I I love her. I love her work. And I was still doing, you know, my dancing and everything by 20. I was focused on modeling and I got with elite models. And so my acting career just kind of like went away at that point. But then I went back to that same acting coach. And then from there, um, I started booking a few acting roles and then got my first leading role. And then from there, got showgirls. It just sort of like happened organically. Yeah. Yeah. It was like the, the early success kind of story. Although to me, it felt like it was taking forever because I was really focused and really disciplined. And that was the main thing I wanted to accomplish in my life. But it was kind of all over the place, like you said, you know, yeah, it's like, I, oh, I wanted to, you know, do modeling. I thought at the time with acting, I used to reason with myself and I'd be like, like modeling at back then, you had to be really young. It's not that way anymore. But, um, and I thought acting, I could do at any age because I can play characters. So it was a little bit on the back burner in my mind. Yeah, that makes sense. Did you do any TV before Showgirls or did TV come later for you? 
I just thought of that the other day because I finally booked my first like guest star part on a show called Freshman Dorm. And it was just one scene, but it was with Casper Van Dien. And we had this little scene together. Yeah, that was the only TV. I was auditioning a lot for these small parts back then. But then I got this leading role in a movie called Art Deco Detective. And that was, that was like the big break for me, because from there, that's how I got the audition for Showgirls. I've always loved Paul Verhoeven's work. How was it working with him? Oh, well, it, I mean, it was great. It was kind of like a dream come true at the time back then in 95, because um, I had really, I had loved basic instinct. And, you know, I was, I looked up to um, Sharon Stone so much. We have the, we have the, I love, I love that. I heard it. it I heard it first and now it's over there. <laughs> So the people who are listening, Rena and I are neighbors. And so that's why it's like we, like I could hear it coming up the block and I knew it was coming to you next. <laughs> that's so funny. It's really loud here. So yeah, it, it was just, I, I can't even find the words, like how happy I was that I got to work with Paul Verhoeven. It was, it was just perfect. Was he exacting or was there a lot of freedom? He would change the way he went about working with actors with the different actors. And, um, you know, like there, there are documentaries made about his, how he directed Elizabeth and he, you know, he, like he gave her a lot of direction because he wanted a certain type of heightened performance. I mean, I was there of course, but, but with me, I was surprised he did give me a lot of freedom. Like we would do the rehearsal. I don't know if we would take the rehearsal. I can't really remember. But I just remember bringing what I thought of and then waiting for his feedback. And I remember he, he would just say, do it again. Like there was no, there weren't major adjustments that he gave me. I remember one that really stuck with me. And this is just so minor. I mean, it shows that he's very into the detail. And I still have this tendency to like put my head to the side when I talk. And he was like, keep your head up straight when you talk and, or, you know, deliver my lines. Cause I was like going like this, but then in the final take, I remember my head is still cocked to the side. <laughs> he, he was just more like every take that we did, he would just encourage. Was it a good shoot? Like, did people enjoy being there? Yes. I felt like we were all on a high, you know, it had that energy where it was just like the most important and the biggest thing that was happening in everyone's lives. Because most of us, well, not all the actors, of course, but there were so many dancers on that set. And so because we got to dance and we had dance rehearsals and, you know, it was a job, <laughs> we're getting paid and we're working with like the biggest director in Hollywood at the time with the biggest writer at the time, Joe Esterhouse. We were just, all of us, I think we're just in awe of our lives in that moment, but it was a great experience. What was it uh, like physically? Was it exhausting to just have all of the dance and the, just the whole nine yards? I mean, just to make a movie by itself is exhausting enough, but then you add in all of this additional performing that's going on in it. You know, I, I look back on it and I would kind of like calibrate my whole day or even my whole week to save up my energy 
and just give it all when I had to, when the dance would happen, you know, like I would, I would, you know, sit in my trailer, go into quarantine (laughs) and then just exert myself when I would do the dancing. So I don't think I I was really that exhausted. If I was doing that now, I I don't know if I would have (laughs) that energy because it did take a lot of energy. And like our rehearsals, I remember were like three hours or something at a time. And we were rehearsing like every day. That's crazy. I mean, we were all really young at that time. I was like 24 and I can tell by the one scene that took place in Vegas, which was the first week of filming. And then we went on for like five months and we were you know, rehearsing, rehearsing. My, my dances were longer than what ended up in the, in the film, but my body completely changed. But like Gina says, yeah, I don't think I've ever been in that great of shape either since the showgirls dance workout. That's amazing. Um, and then right afterwards, well, how long was striptease after Showgirls? Not very long. The day I wrapped my scene, which was at the end of the whole production, I did this show called Land's End. Right after that, like a couple months on that, then I went right into striptease. So it was kind of like, I think only a couple months after that we got into striptease production. Cool. And comparatively, what scope of a shoot was that like i mean showgirls in my what i've heard and and seen or read anyway was just a gargantuan you know machine lots of people lots of you know just the scope of it was striptease as big actually striptease was bigger there were so many elements to that production that it made showgirls seem like an independent film just like that energy, that vibe, you know, and, and the creativeness that happens compared to striptease. Like we shot less for every day. We only shot like, you know, uh, I'm exaggerating here, but like an eighth of a page. And we would rehearse the one scene for like five hours before doing the, the t- you know, five takes or 10 takes, whatever it would take. We were filming in... Florida and like the production, like rent us all like um, cars and gave us bikes. And we like all had our own sports car <laughs> and, and just a and lobster and, and, a, and a, mas- a massage therapist on set for each one of us. It was just at a whole new level of, of being kind of like spoiled. <laughs> Basically, I look back on it. So great, yeah, it was though. even bigger. It was, yeah, it was a, it seemed to be a bigger budget by the way they allocated the, the funds in that way. Yeah. I loved that movie. I remember seeing it when it came out and I just, I really loved it. And I think I was, I mean, I don't know why everybody like the critics didn't like it so much, but I thought it was fine. And maybe it was just marketed, you know, in, in the wrong way or something. I don't know, but I thought it was yeah. great. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> I, I would like to revisit that that movie as well because it was kind of like cute. It was very, it was kind of like a family film, even though yeah. it was striptease compared to Showgirls was more risque. Right. How soon was Mulholland Drive? I think in ninety nine or or two thousand. Couple years later. Okay. Yeah, uh, maybe we filmed that in in ninety nine, and then it got stuck. 
you know, in the right. Because it was originally meant to be a pilot. Yeah, it was going to be a TV series. Had you filmed all your stuff already when then he came, went back in to do the final, like the sort of second shoot? Yeah. The one thing with Mahon Drive, um, I was supposed to film more and then they notified me, oh, it's not going to be picked up as a, a TV series, but we're going to turn it into a movie. And then they sent me, and I don't know who, I mean, I heard a few other people, but like new contracts. And so I was supposed to film some more scenes. And then I was waiting. I was like, this is the month it's supposed to happen. And then nothing happened. But then I I had heard from some people who are close to the, like all the the David Lynch fan base, you know, kind of what happened. And the actor who was supposed to be in the scene with me was unavailable, but we'll never know because David Lynch won't tell. (laughs) Of course, that's amazing. <laughs> like I'm still, I still have questions, and I see, I watch his interviews about Mahon Drive, and he's still kind of vague with giving it all away. So totally, and I, I admire that. I mean, on one hand, it's sort of fun to let the audience just decide whatever they want, you know. Um, oh yeah, definitely. I think that's one of the, the things that makes Mahon Drive kind of live on and have that special thing about it is that people are trying to figure out, like still trying to solve the, the mystery. I mean, just like Twin Peaks. You know? Right. How was David as a director to work with? He was great as well. Like he was really creative. Like you, you felt that artistic energy coming from him. And he also gave me a lot of freedom. And, and he also gave me this, I've told the story before, but um, kind of the same as Paul Verhoeven, but, the direction was um, I had this other scene that did get cut from the film and I was looking up in the sky and I was playing like my character was kind of like living on the streets, you know, and maybe, maybe I was on drugs, you know, when I was looking up in the sky for the first take and he's like, you know, Rena or Lane or whatever he called me, um, don't look up in the sky because I'll have to cut away to that shot. And I don't want to have to, cause I don't, know what's up gonna be up in the sky like what is it you're looking at and I was like oh okay so interesting yeah that is actually pretty interesting because he was it was sparking his imagination in that moment I remember amazing yeah and and he had told me like he was still open to possibilities basically with some of the questions I asked him about the script you know looking back on it I I see how he was just in that creative process, even when we were filming, just to see where this TV series was going to go with his storyline. So he was flexible. He wasn't rigid, in a sense. Yeah, except for the part where I was looking up in the sky (laughs) and he would have to do a turnaround. Filmmaker Rena Riffle. Another wonderful guest is cult icon Mink Stoll. John Waters will tell you a story that I threw a saxophone at him. We didn't speak (laughs) after we finished filming Pink Flamingos. I moved out. You can hear my full interview with Mink at filmmakingconfidential.com or by subscribing for free to this podcast. We'll be right back with Rena Riffle. Stay with us. I'm Steve Balderson, and this is the Filmmaking Confidential Podcast. I'm back with Rena Riffle. 
I ended up getting a record deal at that time as a, a dance artist. It was with Polygram Records and Mercury Records. And it was going to be for a, a dance single. I was working with all of these like Louis Martinet in Miami. I went back there and he did um, Expose. Remember that band? Like, so I was working with all these like 80s um, producer writers, some people that worked with Paul Abdul. But what happened was music was starting to change at that time. And then there was like an M&A with, I forget the companies, but basically Polygram kind of dropped all their artists. And I ended up, they didn't release my, my single. I remember at the time we were kind of like trying to figure out what my single would be even. And then after that, I just like kept writing songs and, and kept recording and and all that. And it's, it's been like a passion in my life. I don't know. I end up putting my songs in some movies and one is in showgirls as well. While you're filming, did they know that you were going to have this song in there or was it when it was in post? Oh yeah. It was actually on the set. It was while we were filming and I had this, this new demo that I had just done the, the deep kiss song and it was on a cassette tape. And I asked the music supervisor, I said, you know, I, I sing, I just did this, this song. Would you guys like to use it? So she brought it back to her coworkers or the production office. And, and she told me this, like she played it over the, the speaker and everyone's like, oh, that's a good song. Yeah, let's put that in there. And then she's like, hey, well, that's one of, you know, the, the actress in the movie, that's Rita. And they're like, oh. Because she, she told me like she didn't want like a bias, you know, and she wanted to see if it's really a good song for the film. And then she played it for Paul and he's like, yeah, this is great. Oh, well, that's, you know, Penny. So then he came up to me and he's like, yeah, I love your song. We'll put it in. It's perfect for this one spot that he was looking for something, which is right before the, the Nomi lap dance scene. <laughs> I was really excited about that. Here's a clip of Rena's song, Naked. And I'm broken, I fight for my breath, hoping I'll give it my best, knowing my hands may be tied, but my spirit won't die in a heartbeat. There's gotta be something better than this, I'm tired of the mess, of the mess who's There's gotta be something better than this, my heart is Have you continued with it? Yeah, I've, I've been doing music. I, I've been working with um, a producer who lives in Sweden. And we put together some songs, which basically he's composing all this music. But we are working on doing music for a fitness program <laughs> that I'm working on. Cool. And, uh, so that's kind of been ongoing. But he, I'm still creating music. I love music. But right. I'm not like pursuing music the music business. Well, I think that that's, I mean, no, I know what you mean, but like as an artist with so many different gifts and also avenues of expression, you know, there's so many different ways to express yourself. And I think it's important to do all of them, even if it's not meant to be a career choice, you know? I love that. What was, okay, first of all, I am a huge fan of Astrid's self-portrait. Thank you. I, I didn't, I didn't even 
I didn't think any, I didn't know if anyone saw it or not. Well, I feel like we met either we met after I saw it or we met and then I saw it and I was like, oh my God, this is awesome. Like, this is like beautiful cinema. And then I was like, I have to talk to Rena more because this is just like really amazing and inspiring. I mean, the costumes, the look, the, all of it, you just like the whole nine years. And you were, you produced, directed, or did you produce or you just directed, wrote, you're in it. Um, did you shoot it too? I mean, did you, were you the DP? I mean, it's like, I feel like every part of it was your DNA. Yeah. Yeah. I, I did everything. I, I would recruit my mom at times, my little brother and my co-star who played a cinematographer or a photographer to do some of the photography. But mostly like a lot of it is just self-portrait as well. But yeah, I just shot it myself. But um, that was like part of the process. And the experiment was just to do it all myself and just really enjoy it and kind of get away from the other way of you know independent filmmaking is when there is the big collaborative crew and so many people and you know calling people, getting them to come down and all this kind of stuff so i just i wanted to just make it really minimal how did you know to do astra did it come from a place of kind of frustration of working with other people or more the excitement of the experiment of can i be a one-man band basically one woman show well i mean it was a little of both but i i hit i was like completely burnt out after doing the showgirls too that movie i like bit off more than i could chew kind of vibe that's just it was so overwhelming and it was presented in a way because showgirls too it seemed as though it had a budget you know but um but it was just burnout i wanted to like reclaim my own artistic capabilities and vision and I used it almost like a healing process. It's easier to just make a movie on my own and just wear all the hats. And like you brought up Cindy Sherman, like that was one of my inspirations to to do this self-portrait kind of film. And then I ended up doing another film that was similar, which I really was going into experimental area to where I actually recut it like not too long ago that I would have these super long takes that all like self-portrait style. And that's called my, my wife is at home. Would you say that your history in dance and choreography made the transition into becoming a director easier for you than other people maybe? Yeah. Dance. It's so structured and it's like, there's that rhythm and the different levels that you hit with a dance performance um, even though there's many types of dance performances, but I, I just took it, a course on dance history. So they kind of broke it down to me even better, but yeah, yeah. It applies dancing and choreography apply to directing and, and editing. Was it through modeling that you learned composition, like the, the, how to have the costumes look that way and the shot and the framing and the, all of that? Yeah, I think so. I mean, a big part of, writing the script for me is kind of starts with the visual of the fashion and and their look and the character and then constructing the story you know just like whatever i dream up whatever pops into my head basically so just like reverse engineering from 
yeah. the look down to then figure out what the scene is. Yes. You could take the, the wardrobe, the look, and then a lot of times it's also the location because it, I don't know if it's working backwards. It could be compared to, you know, a lot of the really big budget studio films. It's like, okay, now we've got to find this, you know, as it says in the script or build it or as a set. But a lot of times, yeah, I work backwards and I'll find a location and then use that to create the story, which I didn't do with the showgirls too. And that was one of the, one of the hardest parts, but, but we pulled it off. Like sometimes I was blown away. I was like, this is actually what I envisioned. How, how did we find it and get it for low cost? You know? Well, that's always the trick in I mean, I don't know. I like creating with restraint and having not all the resources because then you have to learn actually to be more resourceful, even if you don't have a lot yes. of resources. Yeah, that that is where the the creativity really goes to that next level is having those restraints. I, I love it too. I, cool. I love working in that way. What I also think is interesting as an artist who you're an actor, you're a director, you're a musician you're a dancer, you're an all around creator, Mm -hmm. right? I love that you in the middle of all of this want to continue learning things. Why is continuing to learn things important to you? And what subjects are those things? And do they change? I'm going to college now. And I started there um, in 2019. I'm just basically taking my general ed right now. And I took this one class on college success and it outlines how to even maneuver yourself through college. It's, it's a whole learning curve unto itself when you've never you know, been. And, but they even said like, there's a statistic where people change their majors a lot of times, like five different times throughout the process, unless you really know what you want to do. But have you um, found that to be the case though? Yeah. Yeah. Like at first I started out with um, a business major. And then from there, I, I started going back towards the creative side. And then I was like, well, maybe I should just do fine arts, even though like what we're talking about, it's like, I've lived a, a 30 years of fine arts training, but then do you have to have that degree, you know? And then I went into kinesiology and now I'm like in um, humanities <laughs> and I just keep like jumping majors. And I think I'm going to change again at this point. Anyway, I, I love, I love college. I love learning. I really love doing the research. I love writing the, the papers, the research papers. It's a lot of work though. Right now I'm, I'm well, I'm determined to continue this, but I'm, I have a 4.0 and I'm getting all A's. And I've been on the dean's list twice, and uh, so yeah, that's amazing. That's taking up my time, like ever since I started that. Oh my gosh, it is—it's like a full-time job, and it just doesn't stop. But I love that you just keep doing it, and that you keep—you <laughs> have a four and you direct <laughs> movies, and you star in movies, and you make music, and you illustrate. I just love that you do all of this. I am so happy that we got to connect and do this finally. (laughs) (laughs) Actress, filmmaker, Rena Riffle. You can find out more by following at Rena Riffle on Instagram. 
Tune in next time for more Filmmaking Confidential. It is totally free to subscribe, and when you subscribe, you'll get upcoming new episodes automatically, and you'll have free access to all our past shows. Please leave a review to let us know how we're doing. The Filmmaking Confidential podcast is a production of Dekanga Audio and produced by myself and Ella Spencer. Our theme music is composed by Kevin Robles. For more of the Filmmaking Confidential podcast, head over to filmmakingconfidential.com. To learn more of my filmmaking secrets, be sure to pick up a copy of the book, Filmmaking Confidential, available on Audible, paperback, and ebook wherever books are sold. I'm Steve Balderson. Thanks for listening and spreading the word. Until next time, keep making, keep doing, keep going. <laughs>